Well, this morning we have the second part of our sermon series on spiritual warfare. And our topic for the day is Satan. Now, it seems to me that Halloween and Mardi Gras are about the only times that Satan is ever taken seriously. It's perhaps the only day of the year that folks really do admit or affirm the existence of the devil. While the devil may gain some notoriety on those days, most of the time, most Americans don't believe that a devil exists. And you have to ask yourself, is that just a cute Bible story to talk about where bad things come from? I think for most people, the answer is yes. Think about what we do with spiritual realities. We take angels and we turn them into little Gerber babies wearing diapers with wings flying all over the place. We make them cute. The one thing we do do know about angels, they're not exactly cute. What happens every time someone sees an angel? They're scared to death. They fall flat on their face. They're not the theological equivalent of Smurfs. They are fearful, mighty warriors of God. And what have we done with Satan? We've turned him into a plush toy. He's a cute little red guy with horns and a pitchfork. And, you know, you've even seen maybe some of the old movies in the 80s with, I think it was George Burns, where, you know, you got the little, little angel fella on one shoulder and the cute little rascally devil fella on one shoulder. We've so comicalized what we believe about spiritual reality that it's no wonder that people think that what we believe about the devil is a cartoon. Now, this picture that we have in our mind about the little guy with red tights and the horns uh, has a very interesting history. In the, in the midst of the Middle Ages, illiteracy was high. People did not know how to read. So the way that the church taught people uh, basically was through theater, through drama. <clears throat> and you've seen the, the, the iconic masks of the, the theater, the happy face and the sad face. Whenever the protagonist, whenever uh, the adversary came on the stage, they needed some kind of literary device to make it very clear, even to people in the very back row, that this was the devil. And so they adopted bright red outfits. They took um, elements from pagan religions and threw the horns in there and the pitchfork. And they just assumed it was in the Bible. But you won't find red horns or pitchforks anywhere in a Bible concordance. They're not in there. It's a cultural addition to the scripture. So my question this morning is, if we were going to cut through all of the clutter, get rid of the red, the pitchforks, the, 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 the little baby smurfs flying around up in heaven, what would we find that the Bible has to say about the devil? And interestingly, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus records a story to his apostles to be included in the scriptures that they could never have possibly known about. This incident, Jesus' temptation, happens uh, immediately uh, to initiate Jesus' ministry before he's ever called the disciples. There were no eyewitnesses to this encounter. So if this encounter is to be recorded, it comes from the lips of Jesus. That's important for us to get here this morning. Because the point of what we're going to be talking about is going to be something that Jesus specifically told his apostles to be included in scripture. And so these words come to the apostles from the Lord's own lips. 
And we certainly believe that Jesus is no deceiver. He's not telling us a fable. He's telling us a story that is true. And he intended to teach us important, vital, timeless truth. So the question is, what do we see related to the Bible? Well, the very first thing that we see, we see that the devil is a literal person. Look with me at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. The Bible says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The then that starts chapter 4 provides a transition from what happens immediately preceding this in Matthew chapter 3 where Jesus is baptized. Now, there are some interesting questions related to Jesus' baptism. Jesus did not need to be baptized like you and I need to be baptized. Jesus was without sin, but this was a religiously significant event in which Jesus identified with humanity by taking on a baptism that he didn't need to take. He was proclaiming himself to be a man and to be, to be identifying with men in order to be the sacrifice for their sins. So Jesus is uh, baptized, and immediately after his, uh, during his baptism, we see all three members of the Trinity present. We see God the Father from heaven speaking, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see the Spirit coming upon Jesus in the form of a dove. We see all three persons of the Trinity uh, there. It's a happy day. We think uh, at this point we just need to build a bonfire, make s'mores, and sing some kumbaya. And that's not what happens. Immediately after this special event in Jesus' life, chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If his baptism was his coronation or his commissioning, what happens in chapter 4? Four, verses 1 through 11 is a chance for Jesus to prove not, that just God, not just that God had said he was a king, but that Jesus would be kingly in the way he would be obedient to his father. The thing that's interesting when we look at this word tempted in, in uh, verse 1, the word tempted can be translated two different ways. Exact same word, two different meanings. It can be... Um, translated as it is here as temptation or it can be translated as testing it's testing well what's the difference between a temptation and a test a temptation is something that's put in front of you to induce you to sin but a temptation that is successfully navigated for the glory of god is a test proving your mettle through difficulty And so what Satan intends as a temptation, God allows as a test. That's an important thing. We have to have a faith that is vigorous enough that when we encounter hardship, it survives. There are so many people that think that once they walk an aisle, that that just means that everything's going to turn up roses for them for the rest of their life because they trust Jesus. Here in this passage... We see that God is the one who actually leads Jesus into this wilderness. It says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted. And as we think about the whole reality of spiritual warfare here this morning, I think it's really appropriate that Veterans Day and this sermon series kind of overlap. Because I can't think of anything that would test a Christian's faith in God like going to war. Uh, 
you see some horrible things there, don't you? There are some awful temptations. There are some wicked things that you see. And so this morning, as part of our sermon series, in, in following along this story of Jesus' temptation, I want you to watch this video of Clay Rollins talking about spiritual warfare and his experience in the U.S. Navy. We're talking about spiritual warfare while you were engaged in military service in World War II. Were there particular discouragements or temptations that were a stumbling block for you as a believer? Well, you always encounter that at some time or another. Uh, I can't say that there was more than when I was at home. You guys were relatively self-contained. When you were on the ship, you didn't see anybody for a long period of time. Well, you saw people aboard ship. You were quite integrated into it all. But uh, beyond that, why, you were at sea. You weren't uh, on land uh, be around people a lot. Not a lot of options. No. You were pretty well restricted. When it came to some of the discouragements, uh, I'm sure knowing that your life was at risk was uh, something to kind of battle. Were there things that God gave you in your experience as a sailor that helped you to overcome temptation? Did you you have any fellowship? You've, You've said that there weren't many Bible study or worship opportunities. How did you find encouragement to live out the Christian life? Mainly with the other fellows in my uh, group, mm-hmm. uh, we turned out to be a group of boys that uh, were all pretty well behaved. And we did have discussions at times uh, of what Christ meant, but uh, we maintained our, maintained our sanity and <laughs> our belief. So you would say... the. Even though it was not a lot of fellowship that you had with fellow sailors, that that definitely was a tool to encourage you. Oh, yes. Yes, it was awful good to know that your buddies next to you were believers also. When you think about your naval experience, uh, you, you as a sailor probably were threatened by all kinds of different things. I would think immediately of submarines. Yes. Uh, I think you mentioned in your story uh, mines. Were you ever in a situation where kamikaze pilots were an imminent threat? No boy, thank heavens. (laughs) There you go. But they were all around. What was the most harrowing, what was the most scary experience that you encountered while in the Navy? The night of June the 4th and morning of the 5th of 1945, we got hit with a tremendous typhoon. We were well out of its range, but due to the Admiral wanting to follow up the typhoon and make a strike on Japan, he ordered us to change course and it took us right through the heart of the typhoon. There was quite a bit of damage. One ship lost 100 foot of its bow. That was a heavy cruiser, Pittsburgh, and it was almost a brand new ship. Mm. Of course, you couldn't control your ship that well. Mm. And uh, the waves were in excess of 100 100 foot. If you can imagine sitting down on the ground and looking straight up at the top of a 10 story or, or so building, you get an idea how deep those swells were. We had 20 foot of our flight deck crushed down over the bow of the ship due to that. 
and the ship would just shudder <laughs> when it was riding itself again. And that was just constant all night long. It was wicked. It was very scary. I think in peacetime that would be scary. <laughs> in wartime, that's, that's got to be doubly scary. Well... You just got to trust. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm certain for you, that there's the old saying that there's no atheists in foxholes. Uh, I'm sure for sailors, there's no atheists in the midst of a typhoon. Well, I never met one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm sure for you, um, your relationship with the Lord brought a certain sense of trust and hope, even in the midst of a difficult time. And there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. No question at all. I can recall setting up on the signal bridge. I was a signalman sitting up there, and the captain come back in our little cubicle where I was, and I asked the captain, what's our chances look like? Well, being the captain, he's, he's going to assure you that everything's fine. <laughs> Which he did. That isn't what calmed me. Uh, that isn't what made it easier for me. I know who did it. That's and great. that was our Lord. That's great. God took care of us because every ship in that whole task group, every ship made it through the storm. The Lord took care of us. There are many people who tell of their experience in war and seeing depravities and being depressed, and uh, just having things before their eyes that no one should see. And they say that their experience is proof that God does not exist because of the terrible things that man can do to man. But here's the testimony of one who uh, experienced uh, the same war, who said that through it all, he knew that God was in control. That even though Satan was throwing things at him as a temptation to despair and lose his faith, God had used it to test Clay's resolve in following God. In spite of the fact of there not being a lot of Christian activity on the ship, he found fellowship. He, he knew that while he should listen to his captain's words, there was a captain of his soul that he should trust even more. And so when we think about spiritual warfare, we do need to be reminded that we do face a literal person. You'll see in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, It says that the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted by, not a devil, but there's a definite article, the devil. There is a person that Jesus has in mind called the devil, with a definite article, being a definite person that he intends to warn us about. But not only is is the devil a literal person, he is a literal person with a diabolical nature. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. After Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, I, I do love this in, in one sense. Uh, it's kind of a, one of those understatements in the Bible. After 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. Uh, I love the fact that this is not one of those religions where we kind of gloss over everything and make Jesus sound like a superhero at every point. He was a man. He was tempted at all, points, at all points just like we are. He was hungry. If we were trying to make a superhero out of him, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have that, that section of the verse in there. So there's just a rawness, a first-hand witness account to this that is just awesome. And we can already see as we think about who the devil is, 
that he's, he's been introduced to us by two names already in this short passage. In verse 1, he is called the devil. And in verse 3, he is called the tempter. Now, as you continue through, throughout the rest of the scriptures, there are all kinds of names that introduce us to the nature of who the devil is. Now, here's the thing that I think is most insidious about Satan's role as the tempter. He will tempt you, and then once you give in to the temptation, he's not your tempter anymore. He's your accuser. You loser. You, get, you fell for that? And so he's not one of these guys that wants to run with you and enjoy wickedness with you. He wants to make you fall, and then he wants to kick you for it. And so look at this list of names. He's called the devil. He's called the tempter. He's called the accuser, the slanderer, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the serpent of old and deceiver of the whole world. He's called Abaddon and Apollyon. And these names, uh, while descriptive, uh, perhaps don't tell us the whole story, but there are characteristics about the devil that we can know that are important for us to realize. And there are four of these specifically. You'll have them in your sermon outline. Uh, Number one, if there's anything that characterizes the devil, it, it is that he is a lover of self. He don't love anybody but himself. There are stories told in Isaiah chapter 14. Let me read this to you. If you've never read this passage... It's an interesting one related to the fall of Satan from his original role. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Two other names for the devil. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations, because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne even above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit." The sin that caused Satan to fall from his vaulted and privileged position as the right-hand archangel guarding God's glory was that he had spent so much time close to God's glory that he became jealous of it. And in that passage in Isaiah 14, I didn't count them, but if there's any word that that recurs in that passage, it's I, 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 I. I'm tired of serving. I'm ready for my own glory. And you know what? If if God can get glory, then I can put my throne above God's and I can get glory too. And he rebelled. Why? Because he's a lover of self. He doesn't love you. He's not looking for company for eternity for you to accompany him to hell. Hey man, it's going to be great. You should come. He doesn't care. He's a lover of self. And he wants to destroy as many people along with him as he can. Number two... Not only is he a lover of self, he's a life taker. A life taker. We see this in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Not only is he a liar, he lies to Eve and says, Oh, God didn't really say that, did he? What's the first sin that follows up upon Adam and Eve's rebellion against God? What does Cain do to his brother Abel? He kills him. Because Satan is a life taker. He's a liar. But fourthly, and gratefully, he is limited. 
He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He is not omnipotent. He does not have any power but what God allows him to have. He is not omnipresent. You may have heard stories of spiritual encounters that people have had. But I'm almost willing to guarantee you that no one that you know that has had any of these spiritual encounters has ever been tempted by the devil himself. He can't tempt every single person at the same time in the same way. He's not omnipresent. Now, he has minions. He has demons that do his, bit, his bidding. But in and of himself, the devil is limited. So the devil is a literal person. He is a literal person with a diabolical and twisted nature. But he's also a person with a destructive agenda. And we see this in verses 3 through 10. In verses 3 through 10, we see the three temptations that Satan gives to Jesus. Let me read those for you. Halfway through verse 3, it says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This first temptation, when we think about Satan's agenda in coming to tempt Jesus, my goodness, Jesus is the Son of God. You would think if there's anyone that you would take a pass on tempting, Jesus would be it. He has resources uh, that mortal men do not have. What does it tell us about Satan's character? If he is willing to go all out to tempt the Son of God... What does that hold for us? And we see something about his diabolical and destructive agenda when we look at this. This temptation to turn the stones to bread is a temptation to trust, a temptation to doubt God's character. Think about what he's saying here. Jesus, Son of God, you're here on a horrible mission. It ends in death. This is not good for you, Jesus. And even now, right now, as it's just getting started, you're starving in the wilderness. How can your father care for you and allow you to be hungry? He's saying, Jesus, listen, son of God, hungry. Those two just don't seem to go together. So why don't you stop trusting in God's care? Because why would he allow you to go hungry? Serve yourself. Don't be a humble fool and starve in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting, this seems to be, uh, Baptists, you need to listen to this, because food seems to be a particular temptation for the devil. It's what he tried with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Isn't it great to know that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam obeyed? If Jesus sinned at this point, we would lose the sacrifice for our sins. I think sometimes we approach the Bible as a bunch of just different little stories that kind of go into a book, but they're chronological. If, if Jesus sinned, we all go to hell. There is no other way for God to buy back his rebellious creatures except through the way of the cross. I'm grateful that where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Satan here, by encouraging Jesus to doubt God's character and his care, is trying to shudder, shatter a relationship of trust and submission. And I love the way Jesus replied. I don't know if we would reply the same way. But Jesus basically said, we're better off hungry and obedient 
then we are filled and disobedient. Do you, do you understand that following Christ will at some point cost you something terrible? Are you okay with that? Because Jesus says, the man who wants to follow me, or the woman, the, the boy, the girl that wants to follow me, must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Friend, if your Christian faith does not cost you anything, then you have bought the wrong thing. Jesus says, don't be impatient. Don't be selfish. Our physical well-being is not our most important need. Being connected and obedient to the Father is the most important need that we have. In verses 5 through 7, we see the second temptation. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had Jesus stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For the Bible says he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you won't even strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's a smart fella. He, he recognized that when he tempted Jesus to turn the stones into bread, Jesus responded how? Saying, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy right back at the devil. The devil goes, okay, you want to play that game? I got your Bible verse. And he throws another verse out. says, hey, let's do something crazy. Let's go on, on top of the temple. Let's jump off the cliff. And you know, the Bible says that God will send his angels to protect you. Now, here's the deal. Teenagers, wherever you're you're at, still trying to figure out where y'all sit, Um, your seatbelt may save your life in an automobile accident. Is that true? Absolutely. You'll be grateful if it does. That doesn't mean you need to go test that theory by driving into a wall. Will God the Father protect his son? Absolutely. But when Jesus responds and says, listen, Satan, I got your Bible verse, but you're taking it out of context. That doesn't mean I need to go out and try to be reckless to put God's care to the test. It says if I ever find myself in a difficult circumstance, I I can relax knowing that God will take care of me. That's not an excuse for me to be reckless. And so Satan takes scripture out of context. He's telling Jesus to presume upon the Father's care by putting to the test. And this is a false trust. This isn't trust demanding that God save you because you've done something hasty, unwise, dare I even say stupid, demanding sensational proof is not an example of faith but of doubt. God, I'm going to make you prove that what you said in your word is true and I'm going to jump. That's not faith. That's doubt. And, and, And Jesus calls it out. He says, On the other hand, let me quote this verse to you. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So if the first test is is, is Satan casting doubt on God's character and his care, Satan here is tempting the Son of God to see if he really understands God's word. Can he win a Bible debate with Jesus? Again, he thinks that he can. He's willing to give it a shot. And so, friend, I don't care how long you've been in Sunday school. I don't care how long you've been in church. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. And we don't think about that. He knows it forwards and backwards. Probably knows it in Latin and Greek. I mean, he's got it down. And he's willing to go 
to go to a Bible quiz with Jesus and thinks he's going to beat him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm going to trust God's word, but I'm going to trust it in its context. I'm going to understand it rightly. Third and lastly in verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If the first test was doubting God's character, if the second test was doubting God's word, the third test is doubting God's way. What does Satan promise Jesus? Scholars even debate if this is something that that what Satan offers Jesus, is it even legitimate for Satan to offer that to him? Does he own all the kingdoms of the world? Can he, is that a legitimate offer? Is he bluffing? We don't have time to chase that down. But Satan is offering Jesus everything that God the Father has said that he will give him. The only difference is, with Satan, you get it right here, right now, by bowing the knee. By following the Father, you get it later, after suffering a humiliating death on the cross. Satan says, listen, I know it's coming up for you, bro. Let me offer you a cheaper way out. I can get you to the same point that your father's going to get you, just without so much blood, sweat, and tears. Let's just substitute our own way instead of the way that the Father has given. If the first test was Satan saying, Jesus, there's some stuff you can do for yourself. Turn, this, turn these stones into bread. If the second test is questioning what God can do for you, he'll send his angels to keep you from striking your foot. The third test is Satan saying what he can do for Jesus. Jesus, here's what you can do for yourself. Here's what the Father can do for you. Here's what I can do for you. Why should you wait and suffer to achieve these great ends? And he aimed at selfish ambition, instant power, instant authority, instant wealth apart from the cross. And the truth is that Satan is a counterfeiter. His price that he offers you is always more than he will ever tell you. And the gift that he promises you is always less than he will deliver. It's a terrible thing. And it's wonderful that Jesus concludes this whole trial of temptation, this encounter, this man-to-man boxing match with Satan in the wilderness by demonstrating his authority. When it's all said and done, Jesus says, Satan, be gone. And while Satan was the one kind of wearing the pants in this whole conversation, what happens when Jesus tells Satan to be gone? He be gone's. He takes off. And so while Jesus maybe doesn't have as much press, he doesn't say as many things in this passage, he's the one holding all the cards. And Satan must obey. So he demonstrates his authority by telling Satan to be gone, and he's gone. So here's the question for us. This is a great passage of Scripture. Uh, As we think about Satan, I, I think this is one of the best passages for us to go to. Because the way that it concludes, the final note of the passage is not on our enemy. It's not on this one who seeks to work us well. It's on who? It's on Jesus. And any conversation that we have about our foe should never focus on him. It should end 
with a note of triumph of what Jesus has accomplished for us. But practically speaking, what does this mean for us? There's some space at the bottom of your, bottom of your sermon. And this is, this is an area where you have the opportunity to participate too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list out for you here in, in just kind of bullet point fashion a couple ways that I think this story from the scriptures, this word of God can be practically applied to our lives. But you know what? I'm not the only one that can apply this scripture to your life. You may see ways that this can apply to you. So I encourage you, I even invite you to uh, add your own bullet points to the list that I'm about to give you. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than, two-edged, than a two-edged sword. It is a weapon for us all to wield. And the first is this. I've already alluded to this. Know the scriptures in order to know God and to know his way. You see, Satan had a two-pronged attack in this. He, he was casting aspersion on God's character... And if we know the word, we know God's character. And he also cast aspersion on God's way. Jesus, do you, have, do you have to die on a cross? Well, Jesus knew that he did. If he wanted to redeem sinful humanity. So friends, listen. And church people are bad at this. We will sometimes be provided with something that we know we should not do. And you go, or or you're provided an opportunity to do something that you know you should do. And what does a pious Christian say? Mm, Let me pray about it. Do you need, honestly, to pray about doing something that you know you should do? Do you, murder. Somebody cuts you off and you're mad. I'm going to kill that guy. Let me just encourage you. You You don't need to pray about that. God has already said very clearly what he thinks about murder. It's a sin in every circumstance. God, should I kill him? Uh, no. It's not going to happen. Hey, we need, we need a worker. We need a worker in our children's ministry. Mm, let me pray about it. Is that just a pious way to say, no, give me something a little more glamorous? Maybe I'll do it. Know the scriptures. It will help you to overcome temptation to know God and to know his way. I love some of these videos. You can go to YouTube or see these things about stupid pet tricks. There's a lot of them out there. But I love the one, and I hate this because it's it's kind of a bad analogy. I'm making all of us sound like dogs. You know what what a dog does with a treat? Man, he he wants that treat. But there are a few videos out there where you can can watch where a master has trained his, his dog that he can come and he can put steak, and I don't know, that would be for me, but whatever is like the equivalent for a dog, a milk bone, right there in front of him. And a dog who has been trained to be obedient will sit there and not even look at the milk bone. He will look at his master until he has permission to do what he wants to do. <laughs> he wants to look at the milk bone. That's what he wants. I mean, he may be looking at the master, but there's just stuff oozing out of his mouth. He's drooling. He's ready to go, but I'm not, I'm not looking. I'm not looking. And when the Bible tells us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen, I'm not calling you a dog. I'm not calling myself a dog. But there is something from that illustration that helps us to understand what it means to be obedient. 
You're not going to learn to follow Jesus just by listening to Christian radio. You're going to learn to follow Jesus by knowing the scriptures. Number two, Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed. The first temptation to turn the stones into bread is an interesting parallel with what happens in Genesis. Genesis, everything is good. It is lush. There are trees. It's paradise. The wilderness where Jesus is, it's lonely. It's desolate. There's nothing to eat. It's a hard environment. And where Adam had everything easy with one rule to follow, he blows it. But Jesus, in the worst and most inhospitable environment that you can be in, fully obeys God. Was Adam hungry? Well, obviously he ate the apple. But he wasn't starving. Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And even in his weakened state, he proves to be more than a match for the the devil who comes to tempt him. That's great news. Jesus obeyed where Adam did not. And on that whole basis that Jesus maintained his sinless, sinlessness is the basis for our justification before God. Friends, let me make it more plain for us. If Jesus has saved you, he has saved you to be obedient to him as well. Now listen, one of the reasons we have a prayer of confession normally in our service is because we don't obey. Not all the time, not perfectly. But not only are we supposed to obey, but one of the things that's great here is the Bible tells us very clearly that because Jesus was tempted in all ways as we were, we now have a sympathetic high priest who stands ready to forgive our sins when we screw up. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to bring glory to God. And where we don't, we know that we can take the temptations that we have given into and we can go to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Number four, we've talked about issues related to Satan's character. We talked about how he's, he's a lover of self. He's a liar. He's a life taker. Um, but the most important fact about Satan is that he is a loser. He's a loser. Jesus wins. Not just here in verse 10 when he says, be gone. We've read the end of the book. He wins it all. He comes back in glory. He, he, he brings his people to himself and ushers them in to an eternity that is beautiful. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this in relation to his uh, battle with the devil. Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22. People accuse Jesus of casting out demons because he's the devil himself. And he says this, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. If you've got a gun and you're guarding your house, ain't nobody going to break in. Verse 22, But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor and armaments on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He's saying, guys, listen, I don't, cast out, I don't cast out demons. Jesus is saying, I don't cast out demons because I'm the devil. I cast out demons because I've beat the devil. And now the people that follow his bidding have to listen to me. Satan's a loser. Jesus wins. And I love the way that this concludes in verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Or, I'm sorry, verse 11. Jesus says, be gone. Verse 11, then the devil left him. And then there's a little and to conclude the story. And behold, angels came and they began to minister to him. Why did Satan want 
Jesus to throw himself off the temple. So the angels would come, sustain him, keep him healthy. Satan promised Jesus something. We don't quite know how that would have ended up if Jesus was presumptuous to test God's word. But here's the thing that's awesome, friends. By being obedient, Jesus got the blessing that Satan said he could offer. If we don't resist temptation, we have no reason to expect that we will ever experience the blessings of obedience. That's a wonderful thing. So friend, this morning, as we continue to talk about spiritual warfare over the next few weeks, church needs to be a safe place for you to come and push the restart button in your life. If you realize perhaps that you have given in to temptation more than you like, perhaps it's because you're fighting with your own resources. Today, there's an opportunity to come, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, to come and say, I I need his strength more for my life. And I invite you as we sing this next song, if you feel so led in your spirit and in your heart to come forward this morning, our staff would be delighted to talk with you about what it means to uh, have God's power for living life and to know what a wonderful God we serve. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, oh Lord, that you have fought and won where we would not be able to. Our forefather, Adam, did what we would have done, but our uh, heavenly brother, Jesus, did what we could not do. He obeyed God, and he even sacrificed his life that we might be right with God. We thank you for that. And I pray this morning that if there are any that need to make their relationship with you right, that you would, by your spirit, enable them to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.